I can show them to you. I can share them with you. You can feel free to check them. That's not the point of not mentioning all of them. But they are preaching, and we might even say practicing, baptism in water for the remission of sins. If Jesus tells them to go and baptize folks, he doesn't have to say with Moses's or John's or with the Holy Spirit. They understand and they take those marching orders and they're preaching baptism in water for the remission of sins. Not to join the church. That's not why you're baptized, to join the church, but to be saved from their sins. The baptism of the Holy Spirit, it had a purpose. Again, it's a deeper discussion, but it had a purpose in the first century, but not today. And as well-meaning people, and understand, I believe that. I I believe that with all my heart, that they are sometimes well-meaning people. They are. They're they're regurgitating what they've always heard, and they're well-meaning in their intent. My father-in-law often calls them ignorant not to be mean we often sometimes use that as a derogatory term right you're ignorant it just means they don't know they're well-meaning when they say it but when they talk about holy spirit baptism they're emphasizing that as something we should do today and maybe even what saves us but it is baptism in water that saves us it is the one baptism of ephesians chapter four number two this morning Some people would say, well, baptism is a work. You don't need to be baptized. It's not necessary for salvation. You can if you want to, but it's not necessary because baptism is a work and man cannot be saved by works. I'm going to ask you to turn with me to a couple of passages in the New Testament. First of all, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Verse 8 begins, For by grace... We're not arguing. We're not not trying to to contradict what Scripture says. We're not asking you to tear out pages of your Bible because we're afraid of what it says. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Statement. Man cannot be saved by works. That is true. That's exactly what Paul writes to Christians in this passage. We are saved by grace, not by works. But if we want to read the whole New Testament and we emphasize that, we also have to read James chapter 2 and verse number 17. We're not trying to cause confusion. I don't believe the Bible contradicts itself. I'm not afraid of Ephesians 2 any more than I'm afraid of James chapter 2. But Paul, or excuse me, James would write there, thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So statement, man must have works in order to have a living faith. Not a dead faith. Again, we'd agree Dead faith is not good. If we want a living faith, James says we have to have works, which begs the question for many people, what gives? Which is it? Why is it that we say we're saved by grace and not by works, but that we also have to have works? Well, first of all, it's not a contradiction. And a key word that you may have heard preachers say before, and I try to catch myself, I do, and you're always welcome to correct me or, or, or encourage me to do, do better, but I, I try to catch myself sometimes and not just blurt out phrases that I've always heard or phrases that pre- preachers always use because I believe that everyone understands what we're talking about, right? If I say certain things, they say, oh yeah, everybody. That's why we're covering the Old Testament sometimes on Sunday morning because I might say David, and there very well may be somebody, who didn't go to Sunday school that says, David, David who? They don't know. So I try to catch myself sometimes and and understand that sometimes preachers and teachers and even Christians use phrases and they mean well, but they don't always help someone understand. And one word that's often used in this particular discussion is meritorious. That's that word here that has a part to play in this discussion. We say that what Paul means when he says in Ephesians chapter 2 that a person is not, way too far, excuse me, that a person is not saved by works, what he means is they're not saved by meritorious works, right? And some people go, I don't even know how to spell it, much less what it means, so why are we talking about it? Excuse me. But meritorious works, what is that? Well, we might define that by saying, Actions 
that are serving to earn a reward. Actions that are done serving to earn a reward. We get that idea that someone would do something and say, okay, I've done my part. Now you owe me something. You owe me my reward. So here's what we say. We say, well, a person can't buy their way into being saved, right? Paying $1,000 or $100,000 is not enough. That is an action that would serve as a reward. We might say that would be what somebody might try to call a meritorious work. Here's my money, and now my reward is that I am saved. And meritorious works do not save us. Or a person would say that we would say a person can't buy enough hot meals or they can't give away enough pair of socks to help the homeless in order to be saved. Those are both good things. We should do those things to help people who are in need, but there is not a number. A hundred thousand pairs of socks will not get you to heaven as we're thinking about this kind of discussion. There is not a total number of things we can do and say, there, there, I've done my part, I've reached the number, and I've done, done enough to earn my reward. That would be trying to be saved by meritorious works. Or take the old law. That's what Paul is commonly referencing in these passages. The law of Moses or the Old Testament. A person could not say, here God, I've kept 300 laws perfectly. I've reached the number. I've done enough works. Of course, that probably wasn't even possible to keep all 300. And there were more than that, 300 laws perfectly. But I've done these. Here's my actions. Give me my reward. I've earned it. That's what we talk about when we say meritorious works. And meritorious works cannot save man. But works of obedience can. Not meritorious works, but works of obedience. The Hebrew writer would say in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, that Jesus learned obedience. And he became the author, the, the creator, I guess, if you will, the author of salvation to all who, what? To all who obey him. So we have to be obedient. Obedient. We can do works of obedience. Let me ask you to turn to one last passage, and that's in John chapter 6. John chapter 6. Jesus has been teaching here in John chapter 6, and the people ask him in verse 28, what shall we do? Notice that we may work the works of God. They're asking about works. What should we do that we can work the works of God? And notice what Jesus says in verse number 29. This is the work of God that you believe. That you believe in him whom he sent. Of course, he's referencing himself. In him, God, and in, in him, me, that whom God sent. Excuse me, what he's trying to say there. That you believe. So if a person is saying, well, baptism is a work and man can't be saved by works, Jesus here seems to be saying that believing is a work. And so I, I agree man can't be saved by works because James says that. But if we're going to say that plain and simple and as a catch-all for everything, we've got a problem with what Jesus says here. In fact, isn't it funny? Baptism is less of a work than faith or believing or even of repentance, right? What does faith or believing entail? Well, it requires hearing, and it requires learning, and reasoning, and deciding. That seems like a lot more than baptism. What about repentance? Repentance requires changing your mind and changing your actions. That seems like a lot more. Changing my whole life, that seems like a lot more than baptism. In fact, baptism is less of a work than faith or believing, or even repentance, Think about it this way. Just because it is a gift does not exclude human response. If you're still there in John chapter 6, notice in verse 27 that Jesus mentions a gift. I'd circled it at one time in my Bible a while back, that the Son of Man will give them something. And of course, we already read Paul's words from Ephesians chapter 2 that it is the gift of God. Right? That's what salvation is. It is the gift of God. But question, have you ever given someone something? I'm, I'm not talking about spiritual. Have you ever given someone something that they didn't want or that they didn't accept? Said, here's a gift. And they said, no, I'm good. I, I'll pass. I don't really need that right now. You can just keep it. 
A person can give a gift and the other person can reject it. I mean, it doesn't happen very often. We teach our children, you would never do that, right? Someone gives you a gift, you take it. But it's possible. It's possible that someone says, here's a gift, and somebody says, I don't want it. God has given a gift. That gift is his son. That gift is salvation in connection with his son and his death, burial, and resurrection. And we can reject that gift. Just because it is a gift doesn't exclude human response. We have to respond either by works of obedience or by rejecting Jesus. We must respond by works. We must do works, works of obedience, obeying him, not earning our reward, not doing enough things in order to then receive this reward. But yes, we must work works, works of obedience to him. All right, number three. Finally this morning, sinners are saved by faith alone or faith only. Faith alone or faith only. You'll hear it said both ways. Here's the key thing you need to recognize here. We should always, we should always be careful when using only or alone in regards to salvation. There are times that we might say something and maybe the the spectrum is broad enough that this is the only way. Jesus says, I am the way. I think that that means we can't get there by Buddha or by some other God. In our young adult and college class, we've been discussing the plagues and the Egyptian gods. I don't think you can get to heaven through those Egyptian gods. Jesus is the only way. It's not wrong to say but we need to be careful as we say some, some of these things are only. Let's notice four or five here together. First of all, salvation is by grace. Titus chapter 2 and verse 11. Paul would write to Titus, the young man, for the grace of God that brings salvation. God's grace brings salvation. And that salvation has appeared to all men. Yes, salvation is by grace. But it's not by grace alone. That should say grace, excuse me there, but not by grace alone. Keep reading if you turn to Titus chapter 2 and verse 12. That what does grace do? We're saved by grace, but grace teaches us to also deny ungodliness and worldly lust, to live soberly and righteously and godly. Sounds like works. Not meritorious works, that we can do enough of those things, but works of obedience. That, yes, grace saves us, but not grace alone. We are to continue to live soberly, righteously, and godly. So grace, we're saved by grace, but not grace alone. Number two, we might notice that we're saved by faith. You know John 3.16. God sent his only son that whoever believes... Whoever believes, whoever has faith in him should have everlasting life. Do you want everlasting life? Then you need to have faith. You need to believe. Salvation is by faith. But of course, it's not by faith alone. Right? One of the strongest examples is James chapter 2 in verse 19. We already mentioned verse 17 a little bit ago. But in verse 19, James says, you believe that there is a God? It's a question. Do you believe that there is a God? Great. I mean, wonderful. That's awesome. Good for you. You believe that there is a God. Even the demons believe and tremble. Do you want to be grouped together with the demons? Because if you believe and you believe alone, yeah, you can be grouped with them. Salvation is by faith. You must believe. But also, it must be more than belief. So it's not by belief or faith alone. Notice again, number three, repentance. Salvation is by repentance. Peter is speaking In Acts chapter 11 and verse 18, and he comments that God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance unto life. More than likely, all of us in this room here this morning are Gentiles, right? We are Gentiles. We have repentance unto life. Do you want life? Then you have to repent. Salvation is by repentance, but not by repentance alone. John chapter 8 and verse number 24, Jesus says, If you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So Jesus is saying that you, do have, that you have to believe. We've already mentioned that. But he also says here that 
Jesus says here that you have to repent. Salvation comes by repentance, but you also have to believe, so it's not repentance alone. What about confession? Salvation is by confession. Do you remember in Romans 10, 9 and 10 that Paul says plainly that if you confess with your mouth, by the way, we should confess with our life. That's true. We confess Jesus by our actions. But he says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus, the Lord Jesus, you will be saved. Seems cut and dry to me. I've got to confess in order to be saved. With the mouth, confession is made into salvation, he says later in that passage. But, and I know you already know where we're going here, right? It's not by confession alone. That same passage says one must believe. There in that section of Romans chapter 10. So it's not confession alone. Although Paul says you must confess the Lord Jesus, and if you do that, you will be saved. And finally, under this point, what about baptism? Salvation is by baptism. 1 Peter chapter 3, as Peter would be writing there, he says there is also now an antitype which now saves us. He could have left it at that, right? He could have been done. If I told you, hey, there is this great place in Florida, and you've got to visit, you've got to go, and there is this city in Florida, and I left it at that. You'd say, okay, a little bit more information, right? Where are you talking about? Can you give me the name? I might can find it. But I need to know the city. You may be left scratching your head wondering, what am I to do? Peter doesn't leave us. He says there is something that saves us, and that is baptism. We don't have to be left guessing. We don't have to look and say, well, Paul said confession, and, and Peter said this. No, he says it is baptism that saves us. But you know it, it's not by baptism alone. In fact, in Acts chapter 16 and verse number 30, the jailer at Philippi, we call him the Philippian jailer, says, what must I do to be saved? He asked that question that maybe you have asked in your life, what must I do to be saved? And Paul tells him to believe and he can be saved. Now I would suggest if we sat down and looked at that passage, Paul's not saying, because he would be contradicting himself in other places, but he's not saying that you just have to believe and say in your mind, I believe in Jesus and that's it. So baptism saves us, but it's not baptism alone, because we must believe. Can I insert here that as you look at this list that we've just gone through, that this is why we talk about the plan of salvation. Or sometimes another phrase that we might use that might be confusing to some people is, the steps of salvation. Because all we're doing is simply acknowledging that none of this is alone. None of it is by blank alone. None of it is by faith alone. None of it is by baptism alone. None of it is by confession alone. There are steps. And maybe one thing that the steps sometimes do is they're a little misleading because someone says, oh, well, I'm not at the bottom step. And I believe. You talk about hearing and believing. I've already made it up some steps. That's okay. That's great if you've heard the word. That's great if you believe. But have you taken every step to get to the point that you have the forgiveness of your sins? Look at the slide that we usually put up. And look at why it looks the way that it does. Right? This was not by accident. I didn't try to mix things up or, or do things. And again, somebody might say, well, I've already believed. And maybe I've already even confessed, in a sense, Jesus as Lord. But this is God's simple plan of salvation, and we best be careful that we ever declare any of it alone or only. Because as we've just noticed very quickly, very quickly, that there are uh, several places where it is said this must be done in order to be saved. I'd like to make a note here before we conclude that and give you the invitation to be back at 1.30 for our afternoon study together, if you can. Because there are many other objections that people make that we don't have time to get into this morning. But several of those objections sometimes come from Mark chapter 16. In particular, verses 15 and 16, probably, as you may know them well. You remember that Jesus says there, Go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized shall be saved, but he who does not believe shall be condemned. 
One of the arguments that's sometimes made about Mark chapter 16 is that it does not belong in the Bible. You may say, well, what does that mean? And I say, well, you've got to come back. All right, to get the answer to that. Sorry. We're going to talk about that this afternoon because some people do say that's not, it doesn't belong there. And you say, well, it's in my Bible. Why would somebody say it doesn't belong there? We're going to try to get into that this afternoon and examine it in our lesson. But as we conclude this lesson, there is one baptism. And that baptism is immersion in water where we come in contact with the blood of Christ. Again, it's not some magical thing. Jerry cleaned the water, he empties it, he washes it out, he puts fresh water into it. Not because it's magical from one source or because the blood of Christ is actually in that water, but through this way of showing our obedience, our works of obedience. We submit to baptism, immersion in water, just as Jesus died and was buried and rose again. Baptism for the remission of sins. When we submit to God in baptism, we work a work. We work a work of obedience, not a work of meritorious works, as we've said. It's, we realize that it's something we can't earn, but we also realize that the Bible says we have to be obedient. Maybe you're here this morning and you believe. You say, I believe for a long time now. We implore you, don't stop there. Don't just believe because you're in a category, but you're in a category with the demons. Because they believe. It doesn't sound like a place that I want to be. And that doesn't save you simply believing any more than it saves the demons. We usually emphasize here at the conclusion of the lesson, future discussion. Because coming to the front now, one of our elders will be coming to the front in a moment as we sing the song. But, but coming to the front now, coming to the front in front of this kind of crowd terrifies you. I got it. I understand. Many people it does. So we emphasize future discussion because the point is, do not leave with questions. Do not leave with concern or worry. You can come to the front in just a moment and make your request known, or you can see someone afterwards, but do not leave with that worry on your heart or mind. Do not leave wondering about what else the Bible may have to say about salvation. We would sit down with you as soon as possible because baptism is necessary for salvation. And we want to be obedient to God's simple plan. We're thankful that in a sense God issued a second plan. That second plan is that once you're baptized in water for the remission of sins, you don't have to be baptized time and time again. Right? We'd be really busy on Sunday and Wednesdays if we had to baptize all of us, myself included, every time we messed up. God says that you can repent of your sins and pray to him for forgiveness and he is willing to forgive you once you become a child of God. We sometimes call it God's second law of pardon. You don't have to be baptized over and over again. And also, it doesn't mean that you're dead the first time you mess up. You can come back to him and confess your sins. Again, in a sense, you can come to the front here and make it known before this crowd so we can pray with you and for you. But do not leave with your life not right with God. If you need to be baptized this morning, we would love to assist you. If you need to come back to him, we'd love to assist you as we stand together and as we sing. As we mentioned this morning, we'll be looking at Mark chapter 16. If you want to take your Bible and be turning there, uh, Mark chapter 16. And we're going to, I don't have a lot of slides this afternoon anyways, but we're going to examine uh, this particular passage. And as you're uh, turning there, we'll make a few notes to begin with. We're thankful that you're here. As we said, since we're having some bathroom uh, troubles there and not able to use them, we'd kind of cut our serv services a little short, but certainly we can still... Uh, take a few minutes to study and try to open up and see if we can glean something from uh, this kind of study that's a little different. And again, for some of you, uh, I was telling our young adult in college class this morning, uh, some people open their Bibles and they read through and there's never a question about anything that sort of, uh, they just kind of go through it and, you know, maybe take some things and ignore other things and just never kind of ask any questions at all. Uh, and I would challenge you as we try to always challenge ourselves to be better Bible students, to be those who are thinking about the word and trying to examine things, not for the sake of confusion, not for the sake of trouble or argument, but to try to really wrap our minds about, around certain things. Uh, as time has gone on, we have certainly had better resources and uh, easier to access resources you could do a simple search on Google, even just for uh, Mark chapter 16, and you'll find all kinds of articles from a, a deep discussion between two scholars to things like Apologetics Press, where it's meant to be informative, but also to try to make it in such a way that we can kind of understand 
the basics of a, a particular discussion. So uh, just to begin, I'll tell you that I listened to a couple of different preachers talk this week about this particular passage. And I listened to one who's a friend of mine who stood and, and gave his belief that not that this passage doesn't necessarily belong in the Bible, but that maybe it might have been added later to Mark's gospel, or excuse me, to Luke's gospel. Mark, I'm going to say that backwards several times, but Mark's gospel, uh, or that, you know, so there's some thoughts to go around with it that maybe he thought that someone else might have written it and it got added later. And I listened to another preacher that I respect really well who said the exact opposite. You know, I think that it, it is part of, of the gospel according to Mark and it's scripture and we need to include it. And we'll talk about maybe why that's important at the end in just a moment. But I would say that I think we need to be informed. We need to kind of look at these things uh, and we can try to examine all the evidence, but uh, it may be that it's just difficult for us to know with 100% assurity, but that doesn't have to really shake our faith. In fact, one of the brothers that I was listening to made this statement. He said there's over 31,000, over 31,000 verses in the, in the Bible, or I can't remember if it's the Bible or the New Testament now all of a sudden, but he said, and we're going to talk about 12 of them, you know, out of that kind of number, 31,000, we're going to talk about 12 of them. And so when we think about it in those regards, it is important for us to consider, uh, but it's also a very small amount of verses that we're thinking about uh, when we think about Mark chapter 16. So if you opened up there, uh, the first question that we have to begin with is what does your Bible say? Now, we won't go around the room, you don't have to raise your hand or anything, but you can certainly note, and maybe if someone's sitting next to you and they have a different version, you might can note. Uh, some people will have a blank space, and not necessarily for, to make a point, but simply maybe to make room on the page, maybe it's where it falls and there's just a blank space there. Some people have Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20 in there, and they're in brackets. Some people have it, and there's a footnote. That's mine. I have a, uh, of course, I have a center column that has references. It's what we commonly call a reference Bible that maybe points you to different passages that are similar. And mine has a, a uh, several line note that sort of explains uh, what the writers of the New King James here, why it's included. And they give a little footnote about it. But the question is, has anybody ever noticed this before? I guess a better question may be, has anybody ever thrown their Bible out before, right? Because maybe you saw, thought it was missing. Um, Hannah had recently, it's been a little while ago now, but bought an English Standard Version. A lot of people are starting to use that. It's becoming very popular. It's a, a perfectly fine translation. Uh, but there, I think, are some decisions to leave out a few verses and make a footnote about why that is. And so we've even been in discussion before, and she said, well, I don't have that verse. Why, why did you call that number out? It's not in the Bible that I'm using here. And then we look, and well, yes, it is. It's just not in the same flow of what you normally read. It may be a footnote, and it may be at the bottom. And so that's kind of the question when it comes to this particular passage is, there is a discussion of whether or not Mark wrote verses 9 through 20, whether or not it is authentic is one of the words that we use. Is it original? Did Mark write it? And should we consider it? Now, this is not to scare you, all right? This is not to make anyone to shake their faith and say, well, there must be problems here. You don't have to be afraid of something like this, a discussion. What's usually, it's usually referred to as textual criticism. Textual criticism. There's many classes. Brian sat through several probably, and I had to take at least one at Fried Hardeman uh, about textual criticism, how we got the Bible. Now, if you've been with us on Wednesday nights, and this has been several months ago now, uh, we went through a series of how we got the Bible, how it went through transmission and translation, and some of the things that go along with this particular discussion. So some people really, really love it. They kind of love to think about it and to try to investigate a little bit more. Some people said, you know, I, it doesn't really matter to me. I do think it's worthy of our consideration. I do think it's something we need to be aware of, though we don't necessarily have to uh, be afraid of it. When you think about your New Testament, what's very interesting is, is of all the original manuscripts, and by original, I, don't, I mean we don't have anything from the hand of Paul. Right, or Peter. We don't have anything that we can look at and put in a museum and say, 
Paul put pen to paper here and wrote this, or Peter. But we do have lots of copies of copies, and we call them manuscripts. And of all the manuscripts and of all the things that have been gathered together to help us have our Bible in English as it's for us today, there are really only two major textual variants. One of them is what we're talking about this afternoon in Mark chapter 16. The other one, if you want to turn over there, is in John... Uh, and it is interesting that um, it's, you may have a note there as well. Let me turn over because I, I didn't have the uh, reference written down here. John chapter 7 and verse 53. John chapter 7 and verse 53 through chapter 8 and about verse 11. And so as you turn there, do me a favor and notice the same thing. I won't ask you to say it out loud. We won't have to spend a lot of time on it. But you may see a note there that it may be bracketed. And mine says it is not in the original text. They are present in over 900, mine says MSS, but manuscripts of John. So if you, can, if you were here and you can go back in your mind, one of the things that we talked about in transmission of the Bible and the translation of the Bible is what do we put weight in? The way I always like to think of it, and I don't know that it's a perfect uh, comparison, but the way I always like to think about it is anybody remember playing the telephone game, right? When you were a kid and we start on one end of the room and we say a phrase to one kid and then they pass it down, they pass it down. And of course, if you go through two kids, it's not very much different. It may be the exact same. You go through five kids, and it starts varying, right? You go through 12 to 15 to 20 kids, and you have something completely different, right? If it's about uh, Joe and Betty, then all of a sudden it's about John and Susie, you know, and it says that they went to the store, and then it says they went to the movies because people just keep mixing it up a little bit. And so that's kind of one of the ideas is if we go all the way back to the first person, which we would love to do. If we had the copy from Paul's hand, we could do that. If we go back to the first person, then we can put weight there because they're the closest to Jesus, the closest to John and the other apostles. Uh, in fact, one of the discussions around this, um, this conversation, this particular text is, some of the early church fathers mentioned this passage. When we talk about what we call the early church fathers, some of them were within... 200 years of John being on earth. Well, what can you do if you're that close to John living? Well, if John's dead, you might can talk to someone who did know John, you know, or someone who knew someone. You're very, very close to the time of the writings of many of these, and so you trust that. The other thing, the other option sometimes, rather than going back to number one, is thinking about how it's been copied, then you sometimes go with the most. We've got over 5,000 copies of different parts of Scripture. If Mark 16, 9 through 20, is in 4,700 of them, then that may be something for us to think about that obviously it might have been there because so many people are quoting from it. And yet others sort of put different things into the process and to try and to understand. So let me back up for just a second and say that... One of the points we'll make in just a moment as we conclude is that it's amazing that of all of these manuscripts and all of these years, we only have two major textual variants that people can kind of argue back and forth. What else do we have, though? We have lots of minor variants, as we would call them. That might be where someone misspells a name. You probably heard stories where when they were, they were copying and, and transmitting that it was very, very serious, right? Those who did it took it serious. You could lose your life and you could have issues if you messed up. So they were very, very careful. But that's not to say that a person might not misspell a name when they're copying down the text. Another thing that happens sometimes is have you ever been reading a book? This happens in my house all the time. I just started a new book I was reading. And I'm reading... And I'm, I'm reading the line, we'll just call it line one on the page, and I, I start going through two and three, and when Campbell calls my name, because he needs something else from me, as he always need, calls my name, right? He calls mama a lot too. But dad, 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 what? Okay, I turn back and I skip four and I start reading at five because my eyes simply go back to the top of the page, but I might move down a little bit further. Now I'm reading 
And that may be, not be a big deal. And I go, I don't remember that. Let me back up and read. But as these guys are, are copying, and think about writing, right? We don't always, even with typing, sometimes it's the same. But you're writing and you're looking. And you're writing and you're looking. And as you get mixed up sometimes, you might skip a line or miss a line. That is known to happen sometimes with these manuscripts. And we can look at that, and it seemed very obvious what a person was doing when they were copying. That's a variant but it seems very obvious. But we only have two out of all the verses and all the manuscripts, only two uh, in, in Mark chapter 16 and then there in John chapter 7 and 8. And I think that is uh, very, very impressive when we think about the transmission of the Bible. All right, two important names that you need to know. Uh, and Brian and I were fighting over whether the bottom one was misspelled because it may not surprise you that Microsoft doesn't recognize uh, either one of these names very well. But when we talk about how we got the Bible, there's really three, but we're going to focus on two major manuscripts. The first one is called the Codex Sinaiticus, and you can guess where that was found. It was found on the Sinai Peninsula. Do you remember a couple of weeks ago? I know sometimes we're stretching uh, try to remember, but a couple of weeks ago when we talked about the children of Israel leave, leaving Egypt and we put a map up here and we showed them leaving Egypt and then going down and going to the wilderness, they dipped down into what looked like a V where we said Mount Sinai was. Really, it's a peninsula, and that's the Sinai Peninsula, and there was someone who was looking around in a, I guess like a monastery or in a place there uh, and found in a wastebasket what became known as the copies, the manuscript, the Codex Sinaiticus. It was found in a wastebasket uh, at the foot of Mount Sinai. And my understanding is, is that it is housed currently in the British Library in London. You can go and, of course, not have free reign to touch and turn and all that, but you can view parts of it there in the British Library. The second one there, of course, is uh, Codex Vaticanus, and it was found in the Vatican Library, as you can guess. And these are some major manuscripts uh, that are important to how we got our New Testament, how we got our English Bible. And it's important because if you have um, a a King James, a a New King James, even an English Standard, there's a good chance that these were used, uh, that these are used in that. And so that's why what my footnotes say is that there's a problem in these two. And my footnote says is that Sinaiticus and Vaticanus do not have verses 9 through 20 in them. And so some people say, well, then they don't belong. And that's where the question begins to come up. I didn't get it on a slide, but here's the other side of that equation. Or I guess I don't even know if you call it equation. It's not necessarily equal. But the other side of that is that 99% of Greek manuscripts do have those verses in there. In fact, I believe someone said it's around 99.653. Could we round up to 100? Well, obviously not. But 99.653% of Greek manuscripts have verses 9 through 20. So what do we do then? How do we go uh, from this? How do we go and, and try to understand these things? Well, we got to go a little deeper sometimes, right? And one of the things that we can consider is some things like vocabulary and style and content. Remember, the question is, did Mark write this? So somebody says, and, and again, it's true, but in the book of Mark at the end here, there are 12 different words that Mark did not use anywhere before that. If you go look at the text of Mark, I think there are 12 new vocabulary words. So what somebody says is, well, then Mark didn't write it. If he's not using these words frequently and using them in his gospel, then he must not have written that. Somebody else says the syntax is different. You know, the, the style, the way the sentences are structured is different. And so they kind of use these things and even the content. If you're opened up there to Mark 16, look at verse number 9. One thing that people say is that Mary Magdalene seems to be introduced. All right? It says, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. That'd be like saying, well, I, you know, I'm introducing to you Brian, who I did this, or I knew from there. You know, you know him because he did this. But go back to Mark and look earlier in verse chapter 16 and verse 1. 
And there is Mary Magdalene's name at that point. So someone says, well, why did he introduce her again in verse number 9 if he just mentioned her in verse number 1? Look back one more verse at verse 47, and there is her name again. And so vocabulary, style, and content are some of the things that people use to try to help us. They say, well, this cannot be Mark. But one interesting thing that I heard in my study was that, did you know that at the end of Luke, there are nine different words at the end of Luke in the last 12 verses that Luke didn't use? So just to say, well, then that must not be Mark. Somebody else tacked that on. It seems kind of like, well, that might work as a good reason, but it might not also work because maybe uh, he did write it and just wrote it there at the end and maybe for whatever reason that we don't know, then there were some new words that were used. But uh, vocabulary, style, and content are some of the arguments that are sometimes made as we think about uh, why these verses are included. Uh, so we could definitely go a lot deeper Uh, We could definitely spend a lot uh, of time worrying about it and fretting about it and trying to understand. What I kind of wanted to do was give you a little bit of information, some background to think about some of the people, some of these manuscripts that have been studied. Uh, And so we can begin to just realize that Bible study should be a little bit deeper sometimes. That we should not just take it at face value, even as we did this morning. That was, by the way, a very simple way of breaking down, well, we're saved by grace, but not by grace alone, based on this other verse. We're saved by our confession, by confessing the name of Jesus, but not by confession alone. All of those things is a good way simply to study and try to look at the Bible. This is a little deeper. This is a little different. But I think it helps us to to try to realize that those kind of things do exist, and they're not intended to hurt our faith, but to simply help it. Two reminders here before we conclude. Uh, number one, let me remind you of what we said a few moments ago, that there are no, there, there are only two major variants when we really look at Scripture. I don't want you to leave. In fact, uh, one of my friends who had preached on this recently had a member who went to the elders, and they said, I'm worried our preacher doesn't believe in the Bible. All right, so here's my disclaimer now. To understand that I do believe in the Bible, and I'm not trying to cause any confusion and doubt that maybe I don't know what I'm talking about or that he, he doesn't think that, that it matters, because I do think we need to be aware uh, that it matters. The reason we talked about this verse this morning is because of Mark 16, 15, and 16. When we talk about baptism, a lot of folks focus in on verses 15 and 16. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. So the first thing to know from this study, real brief study, is that we don't have to fear variants. We just need to be aware and study them. But number two, we need to also know that one of the reasons why we don't have to fret about Mark 16, 9 through 20 is is that there is nothing there that is not mentioned elsewhere to which causes us to doubt the, the truth about something. When people talk about baptism, they will very often quote Mark 16, 16, and that is great that's fine but if we didn't have mark 16 16 we do have first peter 3 21 that we talked about this morning we do have matthew 28 where jesus gives the great commission and so all of those things are important to know that when someone tries to point out that this does not belong we can go a lot deeper if we really want to but we can also understand that that's not the only thing that might tell us that might try to convince us that baptism is not necessary for salvation. In fact, that's why it kind of came up, and I wanted to connect the lessons as we sometimes do. But if somebody says to you, baptism is not necessary, and the reason why is because Mark 16, 16 is not in the Bible, you can maybe have a little bit more of an idea and maybe even just a brief discussion of why it could be and maybe it should be and Uh, why we don't have to just simply worry about that. If that was the only place in the Bible where baptism goes along with salvation is mentioned, okay, well, now maybe we could argue about it and really discuss about it because somebody could, could say something. But when we examine everything we did this morning about why it's necessary, then we get a picture of what God is trying to say to us. And I did want to encourage you. I was telling some of the men at the table at at lunch just a moment ago, uh, but... I was talking to someone and they asked me what my thought was. 
The other thing that you'll sometimes hear is, do you believe in the short ending or the long ending of Mark? Well, what do they mean? Well, the short ending would be you leave those verses out. It's shorter. The long ending would be you include them. He said, well, I know you believe in the long ending. He said, because you put Mark 16 up on the slide sometimes when you talk about salvation. And you know what? At that time, I thought, well, I hadn't really thought about that before. You know, if, I, if there's a question about it, maybe, or someone says, I don't believe Mark wrote it, then maybe you should not use that, you know, in a sense. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't talk about the necessity of baptism because that's not the only place it's mentioned. And we don't have to fear anything that's found there. It just helps us to understand the transmission of the Bible and exactly how those things came about. And so with that in mind, we'll conclude there. And, and again, um, I always mention wanting to discuss baptism and salvation and those things. But if you ever have any questions about uh, anything like that that's a little more textual, uh, maybe cert why certain things read the way they are, Honestly, open all the time, you know, I mean, send a text message, email, whatever, and I can do my best to get you an answer. Uh, we've made mention before, just a really brief side note, but Robert and Vicki Smith have kind of been appointed to help with our library, and they're doing a great job so far trying to kind of reorganize and maybe take some things out that have just been put there and make sure we have correct information. There's a lot of good stuff in there, and we can point you towards a lot of good sources. Uh, so appreciate uh, your thoughts this afternoon with that. Uh, and with that, we will sing a, a hymn of invitation because, as we mentioned uh, this morning, we do, every time we come together, take a moment to think about our salvation and our relationship with God. If you're here this afternoon and you're not a child of God, we sing to encourage you that you would consider baptism, uh, that you would certainly consider it. And if you want to know more and study, we would do that. Or putting on Christ in baptism for the remission of sins. Maybe you've done that as a child of God. You've struggled and wandered away. You've allowed sin to enter your life and separate you. Uh, that's a scary place to be as well. And so we want to encourage you to do the right thing if you need to make a change so that you don't have to leave with any fear or worry on your heart or mind, but know that your relationship is right with God. If you need to make a change, would you do so as we stand together and as we sing? shall be added unto you, singing hallelujah, hallelujah. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Singing hallelujah, hallelujah. Ask and it shall be given unto you. Seek and ye shall find. Knock and the door shall be open unto you. Singing hallelujah. Hallelujah. Ask and it shall be given unto you. Seek and ye shall find. Knock and the door shall be open unto you. <coughs> Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, singing hallelujah, hallelujah. Man shall not live by bread alone, <clears throat> but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, singing hallelujah, hallelujah. Be seated, please.
Just a couple of announcements to remind you of, and we do have several additions this afternoon, had several things that were mentioned to us we wanted to make you aware of. Uh, Wayne Hendricks let us know that he's going to have surgery the 1st of June, uh, and uh, so we wanted to put him on our prayer list, and we'll uh, get that in the bulletin. Uh, also, we mentioned Catherine Isom. James said she's got some uh, medicine, some steroids and things to help her feel better, but uh, continuing to recover. And Brenda Shipley as well, dealing with some dizziness, and so we want to uh, remember all these folks. Uh, Faith said that she had talked to Carol Lee and her uh, father, Al Harvey, had uh, had surgery, and, and that had went well, and so we're thankful for that. Uh, also, Tom Levi mentioned to me he has a neighbor, uh, Peter O'Hare, who was recently injured in an accident, I think uh, working with like a propane tank, and it exploded. Uh, so he was at been at the burn unit down in Augusta uh, with some serious injuries. He said critical, but, but doing okay, uh, trying to recover at this time, wanted to make mention of Peter O'Hare. And then some of you know Charlie Clemens, uh, that his wife is having cancer surgery on Wednesday. Uh, and so we wanted to add those names to our sick list as well as the others uh, that have been added. Of course, we're thankful to have Travis with us uh, today. You saw the note. He uh, had a, a scary moment Friday morning, um, but he was there and to the hospital and back home for Faith to the Bulletin. So we were able to get it in there, but uh, he'll be uh, down from his driving duties for a while. He won't be allowed to drive, uh, but he'll have follow-up appointments with some specialists and doctors this week to maybe get to the bottom of why he suffered this seizure. Uh, so continue to pray uh, for him and, and his family and then all the others that are on our list. Um, as far as our other announcements, a lot of things that are coming up, we won't make mention of each one, but hope that you'll uh, check the announcement sheet for all the things that will begin in June uh, as we turn over pretty soon to a new month. Uh, we are going to postpone the care team meeting for today. Care team four was supposed to meet, or three was supposed to meet today, uh, but we're going to post postpone it to the fourth Sunday uh, due to the bathroom issues and uh, folks may need to leave. So we'll push that care team three meeting back to next week if you're going to stay and, and be a part of that. Um, we're going to ask Charles in just a second come lead a, a word of prayer. It was mentioned we were talking about it at lunch. Uh, many of you know the, the Sorellos have been uh, dealing with um, Corey's niece, Addie, uh, and trying to uh, have some uh, things going on with the custody with her and being able to make it where they can see her. There's going to be a, a court hearing on uh, Monday morning for that, um, and they've been anxious about that, and we've been, have been asking folks to pray about that, and it was suggested that maybe we'd have a special prayer this afternoon uh, on their behalf and, and the things that they've been going through there. And so we'll ask Charles to come and, and lead us in a word of prayer at that. Let's all pray together. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we acknowledge your greatness. We acknowledge your care and your love and your concern for us. We thank you, Father, for putting us together in this place, in this, this church family. And we thank you for loving us so much that Jesus was willing to come to this earth and die for us. Father, we bring before your throne this afternoon the Sorello family as they're going through uh, time in the courts and, and decisions being made concerning Addie and the, her future. We thank you for Brian and Corey and their family that would step up and want to uh, be uh, an influence, a godly influence in this young child's life. Pray that things will continue to go well. Pray that your will would be done in all things. Pray, Father, that we would continue to lift their names up in prayer during this difficult time, a time of uncertainty. We know, Father, that it's in your hands and that you will do uh, your will in these things. We just pray that you give us patience, give us understanding, and help us, Father, to be support and be a, a, a care and concern for, for them and during this time. And we continue, Father, to pray for them and to support them in any way that we can. And we pray, Lord, that uh, all these things would be done in your time and in your way, knowing that it's best and that you have our, our best interests at heart. Thank you for loving us, and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Was there anything else we need to make mention of this afternoon? All right, if not, if you have not had an opportunity to 